Welcome to another edition of Jackman Radio. I am your host, Mike Jackman, uh, joined by my brother, Eric. Good to see you, Eric. And uh, very excited today. We have a special guest uh, beaming in from St. John's, Newfoundland, um, our dear great uncle sensei, David Jackman. Uncle David, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. So good to see you guys. Uh, we have a beautiful day here in St. John's, Newfoundland. And if I may, uh, I may start off, but we have relatives in Lewiston, Maine. Yeah. And uh, if I could just send out uh, our deepest sympathies to all of the poor unfortunate victims of the uh, of that shooting and uh, our thoughts and prayers are with them. So so all the way from St. John's, Newfoundland, uh, we, we, we feel your pain and uh, we hope that uh, you find the strength and the grace to get through everything. And uh, may our blessings be with you. Oh, that was beautiful. Well said. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. What, what a sad, what a sad event that happened the other night. And um, yeah. thankfully, our family is okay. I, yeah, I checked great. in, and everyone's okay. So yeah, but, excellent. Uh, excellent. Yeah. So we had um, we had the good fortune of traveling to Newfoundland this summer in July, um, and it was a trip of a lifetime. It's a place I've been wanting to visit my entire life. That's where my father was born. You know, my grandfather. Um, all of all of our family, all of our Jackman family comes from Newfoundland. All of our aunts and uncles, our grandmother, and um, you know we we uh, we got to meet our, our, our uncle Dave here, and uh, he regaled us with photos and stories. So we'll, maybe we'll go over some of that today. But also, you're you're a uh, you're a legendary uh, ninth degree Kempo master. Is that is that an accurate statement? Well, uh, black belt, ninth degree black belt. I'm sorry, ninth degree black belt. Uh, we. Sometimes we are we are referred to as masters, and uh, we, we're, we're experts. But uh, when when you study an art, and uh, to be called a master, a lot of times we look at all the things that we still can't do. So it's a very humbling it's a very humbling title, and it reminds us that yes, we put in a lot of work and we've accomplished a few things that we can be proud of. But uh, there's always always work to do, and there's always things that we can work on and improve and find ways to better the art. If we have been so fortunate to have been uh, involved in the art and to receive so many benefits, then when we leave the art, the art has to be better because of our involvement, because we've gotten something from it, we have to put something back. So it's like, it's like charging your battery. Uh, if, if the battery is going to work for you, you have to recharge it and put things back and combine that with your own knowledge and experience. And in some way, make sure that the art is is better because of our involvement. And then that way, the next generation they get to have an even more enjoyable time. And always trying to keep the art relevant. Our art goes right back to the Shaolin Temple in China. If you ever seen the Kung Fu TV series with David Carradine, he goes back to the temple. Well, the original martial art that was taught there was called Shaolin Shuan Fa, and Shuan Fa means Law of the Fist. In Japanese. It's pronounced as Kenpo. So it went from China to Okinawa to Japan to Hawaii to the United States to Canada. My instructor, Jean Guillangel. And uh, tomorrow is the anniversary of his passing away. And a wonderful man. And I went to Montreal and trained with him in 1969, 1970. And then I returned to St. John's and introduced Kenpo and sport karate here to Newfoundland. So it's been, it's been quite a trip. It's been quite an experience, and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. That's epic. So you were really you kind of pioneered, you pioneered it up there in, in Newfoundland and specifically yes. St. John's. Yes, 
And uh, we had schooled all over Newfoundland and Labrador. And before I trained in karate, I, I trained with the uh, with the founder of the Oriental Martial Arts in Newfoundland. That was Sensi Graham Burt. He was from England and he had relatives here in Newfoundland. And uh, he introduced Judo and Aikido. So I trained with him for about a year in Judo. And also another great uh, teacher, uh, Dr. Yves Legal, who was from France originally. And he came here to work in the, uh, uh, in the physiology department uh, doing research on heart valves. And he introduced what was called uh, uh, Kodakan, Kodakan Judo, which is uh, the one recognized in, uh, in the Olympics. Uh, Cynthia Graham, the style of judo he did was based out of England, but they weren't recognized to go to uh, compete in the Olympics. And uh, so I had the honor of training with both of these gentlemen, wonderful, wonderful instructors. And uh, so I learned a great deal from them. And then when I went to Montreal, I trained with, uh, with my instructor, who was the founder of Kenpo in Canada. So I can say that throughout my career, I've had the best of teachers from my family to university professors in physiology and kinesiology and coaching courses that I took. And uh, so I've been most fortunate that I can say that uh, my learning experience has been guided. And sometimes, sometimes it's rough along the way. Sometimes our egos get in the way and we have to check them at the door and we pick ourselves up and realize, well, there's something bigger than us and something more important. And we, we, we go forward and learn from our mistakes and try to be better the next time. Right. And, you know, obviously with it not being something that was popular or even really known about in Newfoundland 50 years ago and more, how is it that you first heard about Kempo Karate? How did you come into contact with it and first learn about it? Okay. Well, I was never, growing up, I was never beaten up, but I was, in, I used to get intimidated. And, uh, you know, typical, typical school scene where you got the school bully or the neighborhood bully and they're going to intimidate you and you might take the long way home or or the neighborhood that you wouldn't go through and uh, i didn't want to go around being up people but i just want to be able to stand on my own two feet have more confidence in myself and uh, if i needed to protect myself well, i'd have some skills so finally when i was 11 uh, i saw an advert an advertisement uh, in the back of a comic book and it said pharaoh man will make you a killer in seven seconds. <laughs> lightning lightning jujitsu, send away 50 cents, will make you a killer. And uh, so that was 1962, I was 11 years old. And uh, by the time I converted the Canadian money to American, paid duties and duty and shipping and postage and everything, so that 50 cents probably cost me about $1.25, which back then for me was a lot of money. And when they showed it to my dad, he knew every move in the book. He was a pioneer of combat sports in Newfoundland. He boxed and wrestled. They, uh, they did dumbbell uh, training. And uh, he carried on uh, a correspondence with the late Charles Atlas. Charles Atlas was well known for the 97-pound weakling getting sand kicked in his face. And he showed them how to use uh, dynamic tension. And uh, so they bought books, a man by the name of Arthur Johnson and my dad, they started their own amateur athletic club and they <clears> bought <throat> books on jujitsu from England. And when I showed the book to my dad, he knew every move in the book and, and more besides, but he never, he never pushed it on me or never forced me, but any questions that I had, he'd gladly answer them. And we'd be watching boxing on TV and dad would be giving me tips about this guy and that guy and how to move in certain, certain ways. 
and a lot of that stayed with me. And uh, in 1969, I had the chance, I had to take a year from university at their request, which was a great thing. And I wanted to learn karate because there's no karate being taught in Newfoundland. So I went to Montreal, a friend of mine was staying up there. So uh, we hooked up and got an apartment together. And uh, I went looking, when you talk about how one door gets closed, another one gets open. So I was in Montreal for a couple of, couple of days, first time on an airplane, first time away from home. And I said, okay, now it's time for me to look for a karate school. So I checked the yellow pages and I wanted to find out if they spoke in English. And oh yes, that was okay. So I went looking for the school that night, couldn't find it. And I think I go back to where I was staying. I think, geez, I mean, first time, uh, next, next time I'll phone somebody and I'll get directions. So I went through the yellow pages again, and I saw Lanthitude to Karate Olympic Kenpo, 2176 Mount Royal Boulevard. And Mount Royal runs north, excuse me, runs east and west. And I was staying on Park Avenue, which runs north and south. And it was one block, where I was staying, was one block north of, uh, of, of Mount Royal. So I thought maybe it's just around the corner. So I phoned up, and I was talking to Chief, that's what we call him, and... Uh, spoke to him for a few minutes and I got directions how to get there and everything and uh, I got down to the corner get the 97 bus gave me the side sheets to look out for and uh, when you get to a certain spot you'll see a plumbing supply company and uh, he said when you see that get out the back door of the bus and the door to the dojo is right there so okay so I get on the bus and I didn't realize that where I got the bus, it was zero, and I had to go to 2176. So after about a couple of blocks, my heart is beating out of my chest, nervous, <clears throat> and I didn't realize just how far, how far it was. So then finally, as I got closer and looking at the numbers and everything, and realized, okay, all right, and my heart was pounding. And sure enough, I got to the designated spot, got off the back door of the bus, and there's the uh, door to the dojo right there in front of me. And uh, it was above a plumbing supply company. <clears throat> So I went in through the door, and I was up an old set of stairs, uh, dark. There were posters on the wall, the guys flying through the air, breaking boards and everything. <laughs> and my heart is just pounding. And this is early September, so I go upstairs. And uh, the class is only small. There is an instructor there, Cincy Real. And uh, a brown belt, a lady who's a brown belt, and another one, another lady who's a green belt, and one other guy, I forget him, but... Uh, but uh, they're only doing some basics. And I spoke to my instructor, and they're wearing a black uniform. So right off the bat, I like that, and uh, that was something different. And uh, I remember the name Kempo from books that I read and about the history of it, and spoke to my instructor, and I went back the next night and started training. And uh, and when you talk about uh, and the other school, if I'd found that my career would never have been the same, and the people that I've met and the wonderful time that I've had. Uh, so they took me. I was the only English-speaking guy in the school, and I did French in grades in for grade two right through the university, but we were taught what was called Parisian French, and that's not the same as Quebecois French. And uh, so when I when I used to go to class. The, the instruction, it was, it was quick, it was fast, and I had trouble understanding it. So I used to watch, and I'd see everything that my instructor would do, and I'd study his footwork, and I was trying to be observant. I didn't want to interrupt the class too much. So that taught me great powers of observation. 
and uh, then when I came back home after a year, I got my brown belt, which is next to black belt. And when I started to teach, I realized I didn't have a working language because all the, all my instruction was in French. So then I went back through my library books at uh, a pretty good library of books by that time. And I had to develop my own working language to describe things and to be able to explain things. And uh, it taught me how to think on my feet. And to, if somebody asked me a question, I would say, well, tell, tell me what you think. And then while they were doing that, that gave me time to think and put together what knowledge I had. And then I could come up with a, with a good solution to a problem. And uh, when I first started teaching, there was a parish priest. Uh, we were going to teach in a school out uh, just outside St. John's. And he caught wind of it and didn't like it, but it was, we were already committed. And he wouldn't let us go back and uh, go to the school the following year. So I spoke to him on the phone. And uh, he said to me, he said, you might as well give the people guns as give them martial arts. And I said, have you ever seen any of our classes? He said, no, nor do I ever intend to. So these are the cases of doors being slammed in my face. Uh, the first club that I started was at the Memorial University. And I went to see the director of the phys ed department looking for space. And he didn't take me for for real. He thought I was just a fly-by-night guy or whatever and wouldn't give me any space. So I, so I started classes anyway, and I was in the hallways or up in the balcony overlooking the swimming pool or anywhere, anywhere that I, get a, I could get a spot. And uh, at the same time, Donald Fu came here from Singapore, and he went to the Marine Institute doing electronics. And he's in Singapore now, and one of his companies, they make, last I heard, they make landing gear for, for jumbo jets and everything. So uh, he introduced Shotokan Karate to Newfoundland, and we used to train together on Saturdays. I'd bring my class over, and uh, I'd do part of the class, he'd do a part, and then we'd break into separate groups to do things that were unique to us. When Don went back to Singapore a couple of years later, and the guys who took over, well, I can say that I taught those guys as well. So, so basically, just about everybody who's teaching karate in Newfoundland has, uh, has Kenpo DNA on them somewhere. That's great. And I've got a photo here I want to share with everybody. Um, this is, I believe, pretty early from in your career. Uh, let's see here. Share screen. And I think, yeah. What year would this photo have been taken? Uh, that was, we went out to do a demonstration to start a Kempo class out in Cornerbrook. Cornerbrook is on the west coast of the island of Newfoundland. So Newfoundland is made up of the island part and what we call the mainland part, which is Labrador. And uh, that would have been in the early 70s, probably 74, 75, maybe even 76. Cool. Yeah, that's a, it's a cool photo. That's quite a, quite a pose you're doing there. You're, what's that move called that you're doing there? What would you, what would you uh, be doing there? That particular move is from a, a style called Shoru, and that would be the top arm would be coming up. So if there was somebody going to attack you from behind, that arm would come up to, to block. And the other arm down in front, that would be designed to block a kick. And, uh, and some of these moves are also for uh, flexibility purposes. So you go down low to get your flexibility and to develop your leg strength. And at the same time, you're practicing uh, moves that can actually be used. 
and there's a if I can show you this one uh, and this is taken so that was taken from the same demonstration are those uh, boards or uh, those are full yeah one inch pine boards and the first time uh, normally when you do a breaking demonstration we use uh, what's called dressed pine which means uh, when you get a pine board uh, it's one inch and then they plane it down to like to be used for for whatever purposes that's called finished but that is a full one inch and it's rough and i've never broken it before so i put on a glove because i, I didn't want to have splinters going into my hand yeah. and, and have a bloody mess pardon the expression but uh when i broke it i didn't hit it properly and I didn't like the feel of the glove, so I took the glove off. And those three boards I broke. And my my aim, I'll be honest there, my aim, I didn't come down exactly straight. So I came down on an angle. And I didn't break all of the boards. So I took the three off and put on three more and took off the glove. And this time I realigned my strike, so I had a more perpendicular angle of impact, it's called, and went through the went through the five. But uh, I spent that summer doing construction work with my late brother-in-law, uh, Kevin Kemp, with Newport. So I did a lot of pick and shovel and throwing around cement blocks and everything. So, uh, so I, I took advantage. Anytime I did construction work, I found ways to train while I was doing it. Right. So your the day job also kind of in, yeah, just, yeah, so the summers the physicality. Pardon? The, the physicality can also inform it, you know, a job that you might be doing on, on the side. Yes. And <clears throat> the, uh, the thing is, teaching martial arts, well, it follows the same as the school year from September to, to June. And then the bottom falls out of the market typically. So I was only still getting started. So I need work and money to, for the summertime. And uh, so I was most, most happy to have a job. And I was outdoors all day and I was working hard, which I enjoyed. And uh, so it served me, it served me well. So I'm, I'm grateful for that opportunity. And, and you've done all kinds of, uh, you know, amazing things throughout your career. And I think you were telling us about uh, some time on ships. You've sailed most of the Atlantic or, or what? what uh... Yes, um, I, had, uh, I had a student, uh, Dr. Uh, excuse me, uh, Captain Charlie Anson and his son, Will, and they took uh, Kempo from me. I, I, knew, I knew them well from my travels. Uh, Charlie, he owned uh, a tour boat opera operation in St. John's Harbor. Um, he owned the Skidemia, which was a schooner, two-masted schooner. And he had another tour boat. Plus, he, had, he also had the pilot service. And the pilot boat brings the, the harbor pilot out to a ship. Uh, it's basically a taxi service. So a harbor pilot is a separate uh, organization. And we would bring a pilot out to a ship and escort it in or uh, go out and pick up the pilot if he's already on board when the ship uh, departed St. John's. But uh, I was talking to Charlie. I wanted something to do. I needed a break. Uh, I just wanted to do something different. And so I went to work with him for, uh, for a summer. And uh, I did 20 trips on the pilot boat as a deckhand, plus I did some repairs and maintenance, and that kind of stuff. And then the following year, a friend of his got a contract with uh, TELUS Communications to do upgrades to communication towers on the lower north shore of Quebec. So that would be, uh, if you look at the St. Lawrence River, north of the St. Lawrence River, uh, there were four communities. 
And uh, so I signed on on that trip as a deckhand, as a deckhand and a cook. Now, I'm not a cook, but we needed somebody. So we had the skipper, that was Charlie, and we had our <coughs> engineer, uh, uh, Steve Hearn, and myself. And we wound up, uh, when, the, when the job was done, and our, our job was to provide backup accommodations because the guys, they were putting up uh, new satellite dishes on the, on the towers. And uh, these guys climb where they're dependent. So they arrived in a community unannounced and didn't have a place to stay. Well, we had the boat there that they could stay on uh, in, in emergency purposes. And we also carried a bit of equipment for them. So we spent about seven weeks doing that. And in the process, when we left St. John's, uh, I was basically seasick before he even left the harbor. It was early June and uh, the, uh, the harbor was choppy and uh, I, hadn't been, I hadn't been on a boat in a while. So, uh, and I was going to be the cook, and the worst place to be in a rough sea is down below. Oh, and uh, that's and, almost like the plot to that movie Under Siege. You ever see that? Uh, no, <laughs> where Steven Seagal plays a cook aboard a, 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 a ship, and it turns out he's not just a cook, he's and that was his line I'm just a cook, and he was anything but a cook. He was a you know, he was a uh, I think a keto or or uh. You know, he's a oh, with the Steven Seagal. Is that with Steven Seagal? Yeah, he's on the ship. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's funny that you ended up doing that in real life. Yeah. So that, that means if like pirates or terrorists came to take over that ship, you can you could pretty much neutralize the situation. Well, there's only so much you can do when someone comes at you with a gun. Well, you know? yeah. So that's that's true. Yeah, you know, the thing the things we see in movies, well, some of it can be done and other stuff, well, it's it's Hollywood, right? It's, yes, uh, it's a BS. But uh, through, through that trip, so we wound up, uh, when we left St. John's, we went down the south coast route of Newfoundland and then up through the Gulf of St. Lawrence. And then on the return, we came on the northeast coast. So by the time we were finished, we had circumnavigated Newfoundland, which was, uh, which was a childhood dream of mine. Right, to go around, yeah, yeah. The, the, whole, the whole thing. Yeah, and I must say it was a great trip, and I, I learned a lot. And the courses that I had to do, we had to do a course called the Marine Emergency Duties Course to show you how to jump properly into the water without getting injured, how to inflate your life rafts, uh, put on your uh, put on your survival suit in the dark, and uh, do some basic firefighting things. So that's a wonderful course that, that uh, I think anybody anybody who's boating, any recreation boater should to do a course like that it really makes you makes you cognizant of things that could go wrong and things you could do to help save yourself so after the initial seasickness did you kind of find as they say your sea legs and kind of adapt to it and oh yeah um, because this is i mean this isn't our dna really in your dna because your father robert jackman who's our great uh our great grandfather great grandfather yeah. our great grandfather um yeah. was a sailor right and owned boats or was commissioned on on ships yep. by shipping companies or uh, uh, our great great grand uh, well your great great grandfather uh captain john jackman he was a master mariner and he went to sea as a stowaway and uh, and back then a stowaway and i believe he's 12 between 12 and 14 i, I don't know the, his exact age but uh, a stowaway people always knew that there was a stowaway on board and nobody said anything because what it was is that it meant there would be a, a steady supply of sailors. And if, if, 
if a boy was that interested and wanted to go to sea that bad, well, then chances are he had the makings to become a, a master mariner. And, uh, and what would happen was that when the ship pulled away from, from port or set sail, lo and behold, when it's too late to turn back, somebody, quote unquote, found <clears throat> the stowaway. And then uh, he was put to work. And at the end of the voyage, uh, all hands would, would chip in and, and give him something. And uh, But now it meant that he was a, he was a seasoned and experienced sailor. And uh, he, he could then go on, go on other ships. But they're always younger than, than what the, the law allowed. But, but again, it, it, it meant that there was a steady supply. So grandfather, he went, uh, his, when my great-grandfather came from Ireland, and he was a fisherman on Bell Island, which is an island in the middle of Conception Bay, well known for its iron ore. And, uh, and grandfather <laughs> went to sea. Grandfather was born in 1860 and uh, eventually owned his own ship called the Mini. Which, uh, yeah, kind of lift that up a little bit so our viewers can, oh wow. And was that named after his wife? <coughs> uh, yes, uh, so his wife's name is Marianne. Uh, this the lady, the lady who made the the mailbag. Well, her husband was Captain John Jackman, and that this is a ship called a Barkentine, or commonly referred to as a bark, three masted, and that was involved in the salt fish, rum, and molasses trade. So they would take salt fish from from Newfoundland and bring it down to the Caribbean, uh, pick up rum and molasses, bring that back to Newfoundland, or they'd bring salt fish over to Spain or Portugal. And pick up salt, and bring back the salt. Captain John Jackman. Yes, Captain John Jackman. And this would That's be. Wild. I just had it. Excuse me. Yeah, folks. Uh, Uncle Uncle Dave here has given us a uh, for people who are listening, um, showing us some photos of some. Uh, some of the, our relatives, really, the, the reason that we're sitting here today, these folks here in this picture. Yeah. So this would be Captain John Jackman right here. So he owned the, the Mini, and uh, my father sailed with him. The first time he crossed the Atlantic Ocean, Dad was eight years old, and it was 1900. And yeah, I can't even imagine him. that. I can't even imagine that. Exactly. And Dad sailed with him for eight summers, and uh, his younger brother and... Uh, and uh, Captain Jackman's wife. So, so the whole family, the whole family went. And uh, Dad was over to Spain, Portugal, Gibraltar, um, Italy, through the Mediterranean, uh, on the on the Atlantic over here on this side. They're down through the Caribbean. They went as far south as as the Amazon. And I can remember as a child, Dad telling us about spiders that they saw down in the Amazon. And he'd show his hand. He had big hands like that. He wasn't a big man, but he had big hands. And he'd show spiders as big as your hands. And we'd be, you know, we're only young, we'd be looking at them with big eyes and, you know, uh, amazed at it. So he's all through the Caribbean. And uh, Dad nearly got washed overboard in a heavy sea. And apparently when he's sliding along, he grabbed onto something and just saved himself. So that was a harrowing, harrowing experience. And grandfather was commissioned by Borings. I'm going to show you one more picture. Yeah. 
I think that was that was a uh, a pretty well known uh, company, right? Back back then, yes. pretty pretty big. Yeah. Yes, uh, Barnes, they they were heavily involved in the in the seal in the sealing industry. Wow. And. Uh, So this is your your father was on this one or, or your or, or, or my grandfather. So okay. Captain John Jackman, he was the master. So this ship was owned by Borings, and they were commissioned to do a final search for bodies from the Titanic. And uh, so grandfather, he was he was the master of that of that ship, and Borings, they were uh, they were watchmakers originally. You know, a watchmaker back then. They did more than take care of watches, and you have to remember is that uh, everything everything then uh, you had uh, ships arriving, you had uh, stores that at uh, at twelve o'clock exact uh, the, the the horn would go and everybody would take their their break at the same time, and uh, also things like compasses and uh, barometers, uh, sextants, all kinds of instruments. So so they. They weren't only watchmakers, but they were involved in all those things. And they were heavily involved in the seal industry. Now, the seal industry was used to render fat, which was used to light the lamps of Europe. And, uh, and seal pelts, of course, one of, the, one of the best things you could wear in, in that kind of weather. And uh, it was a rough, very rough, uh, rough occupation. A lot of men died on it. Grandfather went to the seal hunt. I think Dad told me once or twice, but he didn't like it. But uh, very demanding, very demanding job, and nobody, nobody went there because they wanted to be cruel to animals. They were, they were men trying to feed their families, and there was a need, and there was a demand uh, for the, and every part of the seal got used because uh, you had seal oil capsules, or cod liver oil, yet the furs that we used, the flipper was used for for meat, you know, for, for eating, and uh, it was quite an industry. So for the, when the uh, when the Titanic sank and they wanted to do a final search, so Barings they were also charter members of Lloyd's of London, and Lloyd's of London, they were the biggest insurer of ships in the world. And there's a thing called the Lloyd's Registry, and if you were designated as a master mariner, that meant you could take a sailing ship anywhere in the world and be insured by Lloyd's of London. And Barings they were charter members of that. Uh, of that company, so it will speak to how big they were and uh, how 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 widely they were recognized. So grandfather went out and did a search, I think, for about three weeks, and to the last known location of the Titanic or where it went or any debris, and they did a grid. And uh, apparently, grandfather sent back message saying that where they were located between the currents and the time passing, they found one body. And uh, so that body was taken, and the, the life jacket that was on that body is in the museum here in here in St. John's. But the body itself was sent to Halifax, where a lot of them were were, were they were buried there, and uh, hundred and something, maybe more, were actually buried in in, uh, in the Halifax grave uh, graveyard. But, uh, but that was the only body that that grandfather found. There, there are no survivors, which they knew, but they wanted to put closure on it. So they went out. I think they had about a hundred coffins on board the ship, and uh, and that was called the the Algerine. The name of that ship was called the Algerine. Mm, the Algerine. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, so uh, 
Yeah, so they had an embalmer uh, with them and coffins, but like I said, they only found the one, the one body. And and the the graveyard in Nova Scotia, there's there's actually I I think I read there's several people buried there who either under Jane or John Doe because they didn't have any identification and they had no way of notifying next of kin and off and even people who they did identify maybe didn't have the money to be transported back to Ireland or England or to one of those countries. So is that why? the graveyard in Nova Scotia was necessitated? <clears throat> um, uh, to tell you the truth, uh, maybe it was because it's closer. And the thing too is, is that uh, Nova Scotia is connected to the mainland of Canada, where Newfoundland, it's an island. And just getting from the islands to the mainland of Canada at times can be can be quite the challenge by air today or, or even by ship. A lot of times the ferry crossing can't cross because of high <clears throat> winds. But uh, I, I think that basically is that the uh, and then once you're in once you're in Halifax, uh, you can drive or you can find your way via land down to New York, which is where the Titanic was was scheduled to go. So for for that purpose, uh, it made a lot more sense for them to to set up in uh, in Halifax. They were closer to the, to the mainstream uh, of things, and uh, uh, it's, it's just more it's just more efficient, right, to do it that way. Because if they had arrived in St. John's, and again. There's a big difference in distance, especially in those days, between St. John's and uh, and Halifax. Now, today, you, you don't think much of it, but back those days when you're sailing, and uh, there were no airplanes back then that were flying anything commercial, so it was a, it would have been a major undertaking to do it here in St. John's. So where you are in St. John's, you're, I think you're roughly maybe 300 to 350 miles from the where the Titanic sank? Is that uh, approximately, uh, <coughs> uh, if you go, if you look at St. John's and you go, yeah, that's, that's probably about right, you know, around 300, maybe two to 300 miles due south of St. John's. And there's, you know, it's crazy. There's still so much interest in, in, the, in that, this event that happened, you know, in 1912, which is 100 and what, 11 years ago, roughly. And yeah. Uh, yeah. so do you, do you find that you bump into people in Newfoundland who are from, elsewhere who are there really, really as like part of the deal is because they're interested in the titanic or they're, they're you know fascinated by it or i, I mean you, you must get asked you get asked about it a lot by people who, who visit uh, it's funny yeah uh, there are people because there there have been people here that, that have done shows um uh, mr cameron who was the well-known hollywood director he did uh, a show um and they went down and uh, in 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 one of these uh Many submarines and uh, took pictures of the of the sub of the <clears throat> Titanic, but uh, the people that I would see, uh, uh, normally I wouldn't travel in those circles, and and every once in a while I'll meet somebody and they might tell me that and then I'll relate the story. But there's a man, uh, uh, Mr. Daly, who who uh, who had a Titanic uh, exhibition, and uh, he helps to arrange tours and that kind of thing. And his daughter uh, did a wonderful interview that I was very proud of uh, for my 50th anniversary of teaching Kempo in, in Newfoundland. And when I met her and I was asking her who she was and she told me, well, then I realized that she was the, the daughter of uh, Mr. Daly who, who uh, conducts these tours. But uh, it's a funny thing. The, the sailors back then, the, the master mariners, when the Titanic was sailing at that time of year, well, everybody knew, everybody in Newfoundland knew that there was ice in the water. 
And by ice in the water, that could be small bergs, large ones, uh, some pack ice here and there, because it was our, uh, it's our way of life. Either we're going to fish or <clears throat> we're going to ship goods or receive goods or men had gone to the seal hunt. And uh, so uh, people in the Flan, we always had to know the ice conditions. And the old, a large iceberg, a large iceberg has its own mini climate. Right, a large ice because icebergs are made, of course, of fresh water. Right, they break off the glaciers in Greenland, and it takes them about two years before they finally make their way to Newfoundland. And uh, pack ice is not the same. Pack ice could be uh, the ocean uh, that's frozen over and breaks up and then starts to drift. And uh, salt water freezes at about thirty degrees Fahrenheit. So you get two degrees of frost. So, so it really has to be cold to get that kind of pack ice. But you, we have to be cognizant. Uh, like I said, uh, an iceberg, it can have, and again, an iceberg, and I will say this, take an ice cube, a regular ice cube out of your tray and put it in a glass dish that you can see through and look at, at the ice cube and see how much of it is still below, below the surface. And everybody talks about about nine tenths of an iceberg is below is below the surface. Well, when you see some of the gigantic icebergs that we've seen that are humongous, in, 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 you know, that are above above the the surface, and then you try to picture well, how big are they down below? So anything that big, and in those kind of climates, you'll have seabirds on them. Sometimes you'll have seals that will, will find a way up onto onto them. You have parts of them that have started to melt in the sunlight. So you'll have waterfalls, you'll have pools there. There will be a wind around it a lot of times because they're so big. And uh, the old timers, they could smell the ice. And sometimes people go to the ocean and you can smell the salt air and uh, you go into the woods, you can smell the fragrance being in the woods. Well, the old time sealing captains and master mariners, they could smell the ice and they could tell you uh, what type of ice it was, how much was there and always to be on the lookout for it. And, uh, and especially that time of year, things would have been breaking up. So they'd always know that there was ice somewhere in the, in the area and to be on the lookout for it. It's incredible. How, but uh, the Titanic should never, it should never have hit an iceberg, never. Well, they should have had a Newfoundlander helping them instead of a exactly. Brit. Exactly. If, if they had to have a Newfoundlander, a Newfoundland captain, uh, who would have stood his guns and stood the ground and said, "No, I know what's going on here, and we're not going to, we're not going to do anything different. We're going to pay attention. We're going to heed the advice, and we're going to make sure everybody arrives safe and sound." And uh, if they had done that, then uh, I have no doubt the the Titanic. Well, the Titanic, we, we wouldn't be talking about it today. History would have, yeah. There was definitely some hubris going on. Uh, some of the uh, designers and engineers who were aboard the ship were like, "Oh, this is unsinkable," and they right. they they all perished during the, um, the yeah. tragedy. And I, I read one story about a fellow who worked for what is it called, White Star? Is that the name of the company? Yeah. Yeah. And he was one of the few on the crew who survived. And he actually got sucked down when the ship was sinking. And he thought, "Oh, this is it. I'm done." And, and something happened. And there was some. Uh, I don't know if it was heat coming from something or there was something that blew him back up to the surface and he ended up uh, getting on one of the lifeboats. But yeah. um, we have a couple of questions here for you in some chats. So let's from our audience. Sure. Does Dave like the song Barrett's Privateers or does he have any favorite sailing songs? 
Oh, that's a good uh, that's a good question. Uh, I do like the song Barge Privateers, and uh, one of my favorite Newfoundland songs is uh, it was written by a man by the name of Otto Kellen. It's called Let Me Fish Off Cape St. Mary's, and that would be one of my favorites. And another one by Ron Hines um, would be called the St. John's Waltz. And St. Ron Hines is a well-known local composer and uh, musician. They say he wrote about a thousand songs and a tremendous way with words. And he died a few years back. And St. John's made that song his uh, or, or the, the official uh, theme or, or the official song for the city. And he also wrote uh, a poem called uh, Sonny's Dream. Wow, yeah, yeah. that music sounds beautiful. Yeah, and they were, uh, so if you ever get the chance to look up, uh, let me fish off Cape St. Mary's, the Irish descendants do a wonderful job of that one. And uh, the Ron Hines songs, uh, yes, so Sonny's Dream. Sonny's Dream has been recorded by, I saw it one time, it had been recorded by the most different artists in Ireland than any other song. Now, I don't know that's true, but I do know that uh, hundreds of people have they have re re-recorded that one called Sunny's Dreams. That's a great song. So I would say yeah, those three would be would be my favorites. And we, when we were visiting this summer uh, with some of our Culleton uh, relatives, uh, yes. they, they sang us uh, some really beautiful Newfoundland folk songs. I, I'm trying to remember the names, but um, it's our she's our cousin. Um, and we mentioned you, and she actually, she actually knew who you were, apart from, you know, the family connection. She's yes. like, oh, we've actually met him out and about. Yeah, yeah. Noreen Culleton and uh, Dave Culleton. So, yeah. Uh, all right, we got a couple others here. Another one back to Kempo. Uh, hey, John B., how you doing? 15-plus years in judo here. Check your ego at the dojo door. Mutual aid and benefit. That's how it was for me. Loved judo. It got me fit mentally and physically. Kempo is great too. Great, great, John. Uh, the most important thing is to find, there are so many martial arts out there that have so many benefits. And the most important thing is to find one that, that suits you, that, that you're comfortable with. And uh, as always, you should always take your time and look for a good dojo. Talk to the instructor, talk to the sensei, uh, see what his, his or her credentials are and uh, talk to the students and see how they get along, see if everybody's treated with respect and uh, that beginners are looked after. And uh, the martial arts, uh, to, to try to estimate the number of people studying martial arts today, it's nearly impossible. They're in the hundreds of millions from all, all around the world. People have done some training and uh, in Southern martial arts, they're already in the Olympics. Uh, karate will be in the next Olympics. So, and, and again, the, the martial arts, they've gone through fad phases. And, uh, but each time they come back and it's always at a higher level than previous. And there are more people doing martial arts today than, than, than ever. The Bruce Lee era was, was wild. There'd be a movie, movie would come to town. When the movie was over, guys would come down to the dojo to sign up. And uh, the Kung Fu TV series was great. And the Karate Kid was great because it finally started to show that the real benefit of the martial arts, self-defense is only one aspect of it. And the idea is to learn how not to beat up people, to learn how to use your uh, avoidance and prevention is always your best form of defense. 
So if you can avoid something, if you can, and, and you have to trust your, your spy, what they call it, your, your spider senses. So you have to trust your gut instinct. And if something doesn't feel right, listen to it and move, get out of there. But yeah, rule number, rule number one is you protect yourself at all times. And that's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual, whatever your spiritual beliefs may be. But uh, that's rule number one. Uh, it's up to the individual to look after himself or herself. And, uh, and then that's, that's part of the prevention and part of the avoidance. And then rule number two is hit without being hit. <laughs> so have you watched any of the Cobra Kai TV series on Netflix that's no, no, stems from the Karate Kid? Yeah, no, to tell you the truth, I, I've, never, I've never watched it. And uh, apparently it's supposed to be pretty good, pretty funny, but no, I've never, I've never watched it. It is. I have to admit, I'm a fan. And I, of course, grew up uh, watching The Karate Kid, you know, the first three films with Ralph Macchio um, and William Zabka. He went, he's the blonde guy, Johnny, and he went for his audition. And, and they were like, this is a karate movie. And he's like, I don't know any karate. I literally don't, I don't know anything. So I guess he went and did a little crash course. And then he went back for his audition and he impressed them by, uh, he did some kind of kick and he broke, the, the kick went through, um, I don't know if it was like a leather, uh, you know, not a glove, but like something to block focus it. Bad, yeah, focus yeah. Bad, yeah. So, it went yeah. through that and actually broke some of the um, uh, wall. So they, they oh, were impressed yeah. by that, and he and he got it. But I guess the guys who've been with that franchise for for almost forty years now, they've they've become quite good at karate. I don't, yeah. I don't know. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think that that translates onto the screen, or do you think actors can actually uh, make it believable? I mean, if you're watching someone on TV. You know, what's your gauge for being like, oh, this guy's a poser or this is the real deal? Uh, it's very difficult because camera angles and proper editing can do can do wonders. And uh, I did. Uh, I used to have a TV show on the community channel. I had one in the 70s and again in the 90s and also did an introduction to filmmaking. And so you learn and that, that something coming at you, you can you can cut it. You can show this. You can show the beginning of the move. You can cut a small section out of the middle, and then you can show the final part. So anybody looking will realize or think, "Wow, that move is really fast," or the angle is such that you don't you don't really see how fast it is. Or and, uh, and you have the the stuntmen that have to do their work so that nobody gets hurt. And uh, some guys, some some people are you know they are actually good and they can do. They can do the, the skills and some are, you know, it, it's a rehearsed scene. And uh, so it, it's all, it's one of those things that you have to judge for yourself. But uh, when you go to a right. dojo, you know, a properly uh, uh, accredited dojo and you can see the people there in, in action. And above all, something, uh, when you look for a martial art and you ask questions, it has to make common sense. And if somebody has to be a black belt to understand the reasoning behind a certain move, well, then, then we've missed the point. So in terms of self-defense, uh, it has to make common, ordinary, uh, uh, ordinary sense to anybody without any kind of training. Because if you look at all the people that have skills in their chosen way of life, they could, be, um, they could play hockey, they could play baseball, they could play variety of sports, it could be skateboarding, they could be highly intelligent in school. So there are a lot of people out there that have tremendous talents that... Uh, and they have talents that are yet to be discovered. So you look at all of these things. So everybody has basic knowledge to ask questions, to be respectful, 
but to get an answer that makes common sense to them and not to be fooled by some kind of hocus pocus. So above all, you know, it has to be good, it has to be simple. And then from there, your skills evolve into more like jumping moves, skinning, spinning moves, etc., breaking demonstrations. You know, but but so much of it comes down to we talk about a discipline and a beef that I have today is people use the word discipline instead of punishment. And they say, oh, yeah, so and so will be disciplined. No, so and so will be punished. They'll be penalized. They'll be fined. They'll be suspended. Because if you have good technique, no matter what the sport is, that's a physical discipline. Discipline means you're in control. Self-control is emotional discipline. Concentration, which is your mental focus, well, that's mental discipline. And trying to be a decent human being, well, that's a spiritual discipline. So discipline doesn't restrict you. It sets you free, free to accomplish. So discipline, it's not punishment, right? Discipline is your friend. Yeah, well, that's very well said. And and recently too, Uncle Dave, you you uh, did a belated fiftieth celebration of of being in the in the discipline. And this has been a lifelong, uh, you know, journey for you. We have a little video here that I'd like to share. Okay. Um, this was your interview when they did kind of a uh, um, over the summer, right? You were interviewed for a uh, Canadian TV station, or was it a Newfoundland or? Yeah, that was for uh, NTV, uh, Newfoundland Television Broadcasting, which was owned by the late Jeff Sterling. And he was the first person to have a 24-hour TV TV on back in the 60s and 70s. Cool. So our time. Dave Jackman looks back at 53 years of karate in Newfoundland. And I've got this, uh, I've got this piece here. Let's have a look. Man introduced karate to Newfoundland and Labrador. Well, today he is still a legend and a role model to many children and adults. This week on Our Time, we hear from the man himself. Here's NTV's Becky Daly. The world was different in 1969. Man had just walked on the moon. One small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Woodstock united a generation. <laughs> And John and Yoko gave peace a chance. And in this province, Dave Jackman started his own revolution, sort of, learning Kenpo karate and sharing it with a new generation. My mind made up one day I'll be a black belt. Well, it took me about 10 years. I had to travel Montreal, Quebec, to study with the founder of Kenpo in Canada, Jean D'Angelo. Bonjour, The St. John's native has been teaching Kenpo karate now for over half a century. Too many students to count, so many lives he's impacted through the martial arts. September 1970, I came back to Newfoundland and started my first club, which is at the Mon Dojo. And uh, as they say, the rest is history. Those earlier years teaching Kenpo Karate were at Memorial University, but he later branched out to operate his own schools while becoming the face of karate in local media, a local television show and newspaper columns. Now today, he teaches at Rock Athletics in Mount Pearl, passing on the wisdom of a ninth-degree black belt and a lifetime of love for the craft. 
have children from age four up to 74, nearly 74. So the great thing about it is that no matter what age you are, there's always a way that you can practice it. Uh, it's never too late. I have uh, people that I trained back in the 70s that were in their early 20s and they thought they were too old, but they were doing well. And I see them today and they ask me, could they have been a black belt? And I say, yes, and you would have been a good one. So I found is that the most important thing is to have the desire to do it. Uh, the young people, they need some guidance in their lives. They need some help. And when they, uh, I find that when a child has something that they want to be involved in and is something good for them, if we can find the right level of entry, that children are so, so adaptable, they can learn just about anything. Kempo is its own form of karate and is now an Olympic sport. It's a combination of hands and feet, and its best athletes are truly incredible. When I trained in Kempo and I saw and I felt the benefits for myself, and I wanted to stay involved, and I saw how it could help people in a variety of ways. You have concentration. Concentration, which is your mental focus. Self-control is emotional discipline, which, which is not punishment. Good technique is a physical discipline. And above all, trying to be a decent human being. Well, that's a spiritual discipline, whatever your spiritual beliefs may be. But the overall aim is the development of character and helping everybody to rise to the best level of a human being that they want to. The kids, well, they learn more than just Kempo. Respect, disciplines, and self-defense comes with it. When people have greater confidence when they know that they can protect themselves if necessary, avoidance and prevention are always your best forms of self-defense. But when all else has failed and you have to do something to protect yourself, well, you know that you do have some self-defense skills. But the sport is so quick, it's so fast. You use both legs, both arms. You have to think fast. You have to have your confidence. You build your skill. You have to have listening skills. And these are all things that not only our young people today, but everybody can help, uh, help and, and learn from. Well, there are plenty of activities and sports in this province for all age groups, especially here at Rock Athletics. For the NTV Sunday Evening News Hour, I'm Becky Daly, and this is Our Time. That's awesome. There you go, folks. Thank you. Now, uh, just to clarify one thing, I, I want to make sure that people realize that, that it wasn't me on the moon and was, that wasn't me playing the guitar either. <laughs> you weren't the fella in bed with, with Yoko singing about peace? That wasn't no. you? No. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's quite, it's quite a story, man. You know, and it's amazing uh, that that was over 50 years ago and you brought that to Newfoundland and um, you know, when we went up there this summer, I mean, everything that I had heard about Newfoundland and how the people would be, you know, definitely like lived up to it. And everyone was, you know, obviously, of course, you were very kind and welcoming. And you brought us to um, what was the fish and chip spot we went to? Duke of Duckworth. Yeah, Duke of Duckworth. Yes. Best, best fish and chips around, was it? Oh, it was yeah. so good. And it's the, phenomenal. The dressing, Mike, we got turned on to the dressing, too. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, anyway, it wasn't dressing in the sense of like, you know ranch dressing or uh, oil and vinegar. It was um, yeah. stuff. Oh, oh, we're going to spill the secret? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, <coughs> people on the mainland, they, they, sometimes they call it stuffing, and they use sage. And here in Newfoundland, we use savory. Savory, savory yes. Crumbs and onion. Some people put onion in. Most people put onion in. But normally in the restaurants, because some, a lot of people don't like the onion, they'll, they'll do it with the breadcrumbs and savory and some butter. 
and uh, but for Turkey, always the best. So if you ever get the chance to get uh, Newfoundland, uh, uh, Newfoundland savory, and by all means, yeah. Yeah, we had that last year, Mike. Annie got it shipped from Newfoundland, special oh, yeah? for, th for Thanksgiving. Yeah, she did. She got a pack of it sent, yeah. and she made dinner for Excellent. us, and it was, oh, it was to die for. It was awesome. Yeah, it was, I mean, we hope we definitely hope to get up there again. And you know, our friend Dylan, who you met, he had a great time, and yes. it was just you know, it's just a special place. I didn't really want to leave, and uh, yeah. you know, uh, Bonavista Light up north of St. John's. Um, I don't know if you spent any time up there, but it, I, that was that was one of my favorite parts. I mean, obviously, oh, I loved all of it, but yeah. there was just something about Bonavista up there and being being out there on the. So for anybody, anybody watching and listening, uh, please, please uh, look up Newfoundland. And uh, if you're looking for a wonderful vacation to come, and uh, you'll have a wonderful time. And we have one beautiful scene after another. We, we don't have just one or two. We've got a hundred of them. And uh, every time you see a beautiful uh, spot down by the ocean, and, and you go around the next cove, and there's another one also beautiful. And uh, I was swimming last week in the ocean, by the way. So, uh, so that was great. And a lot of people today, they're into the cold water immersion therapy. So mm -hmm. there's a bunch of us now that we go down to a beachy cove, a wonderful spot near St. John's. And uh, we swim uh, we swim in the, in the cold water and enjoy it. And uh, when we get out of the water, we all have the same. We, we've sworn that we all have to say the same thing, that when we get out of the water, our saying is no regrets and i've never ever gotten in the water no matter how cold came out of it and said i was sorry i did it. never and but you go in every day right roughly uh try to try to try go to every rest. day as a matter of fact if i didn't have the great honor and pleasure of talking to to all of you guys today i'd be down there now swimming but uh, <laughs> but, uh, but maybe maybe after after our pod uh, i might have time to get down but uh yeah. And now, and having said that, it, that that shouldn't be confused with being on a ship or being on a boat and getting getting swamped and going overboard. Because when you're in some parts of the ocean, the the temperature could be you know only uh, 35 degrees Fahrenheit, you know 40 degrees Fahrenheit, and people don't last very long in in, in those temperatures. So, no. So the ocean ocean is to be loved and appreciated and respected. Respected. Yeah, absolutely. Well, before we close up, Dave, I wanted to get your thoughts on what, what is like a big misconception about Newfoundland and people from Newfoundland? Because I know, you know, the goofy Newfie stereotype, I had that going yeah. into it. And of course, coming from a family of Newfies who are pretty goofy people, Mike and I are, yeah. um, you know, into the comedy and stuff. Um, in your mind, what are like a couple of big misconceptions and what are things that are absolutely true about Newfoundlanders? Uh, I think one of the things is that for the longest time, uh, people thought uh, people thought that we were uh, ignorant, dumb, stupid fishermen that couldn't read or write and things like that. And people would go to the mainland, and when we say the mainland, we mean the rest of Canada or down to the states. And uh, people would go there to, to look for work. And uh, Newfoundland. The entire, the, the island part of Newfoundland, it's the 10th largest island in the world, which is pretty big. But our, large, our largest city, St. John's, only has 100,000 people. And uh, there'd be all kinds of communities scattered around the, the coastline. And there could be 1,000 people. There could be 500 people. This could be maybe 200 people. And in the olden days, trying to 
trying to get around either you had to do it by boat there are no roads back then and a lot of people they they they're irish and they they left ireland left ireland to uh, to escape the potato famine and to get away from some servitude where they worked the land and they never ever saw a cent they were basically they were basically white slaves and so they came here to try to get uh, a new living and uh, a new uh, a new start so a lot of them didn't have what you call book learning and, and that kind of education. So they had to learn how to live by their wits. And when you go through hardship, because a lot of times people starved and uh, you learn how to improvise and you learn how to become ingenious, you learn how to make things work. And when if you're on a ship at sea, uh, especially back in those days, you didn't have communication, you didn't have ways to, to get parts. So you had to learn how to improvise and make do with what you had, and uh, and and that that also happened in uh, in just trying to make a living on land. So if you had a piece of equipment that broke down, uh, maybe you couldn't afford to get a new part, or you couldn't wait for it to get shipped. So you had to learn how to put things together and, and make something work. Uh, it is well known that men could take they could take an engine out of a car, learn how to gear it down, and put it in a boat or they could take a, a, an engine off one type of block and put it on a different one and learn how to make that work. So they had to learn how to live by their wits. And at the same time with our Irish tradition, uh, we love music, we love to have fun. And when you're dealing with hardships all the time, well, jumping, if you don't get the opportunity to, to laugh and, uh, and to dance and forget about your troubles, well, then guess what? You, you'll perish. You'll perish more from your troubles, from the thought of your troubles and the emotional pain than you will from the actual hardship. I can remember asking my dad one time, I said, Dad, these, these, say, you know, these sea captains, you know, I said, were they, were they smart men? And uh, I can still remember he took the globe and he said, uh, a master mariner, sea captain, and he pointed out on the globe, he said he could take a sailing ship from this spot right here. So I'm looking at it, you know, oh yes. And he could bring it over to this spot over here. And it could be from St. John's over to Gibraltar or over to Spain. He could land it right in, right in that harbor, safe and sound, bring it from there down to some other place, bring it back up there. Now, they said, do you think they were, do you think they were stupid men? And I said, no. And, uh, and, and that's the way we were. When, when you are a captain, like that, and uh, and they sail the world with only a sextant and a compass and their charts. They didn't have GPS or they didn't have communications all the time, so they had, they had to learn to to improvise. They had to do calculations. Their their navigation skills had to be exact. Their their ability to work with numbers, their 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 knowledge of geography around the world. So so these people were very highly intelligent people and their will to live and their will to look after their families and to provide for them. So they had a tremendous uh, sense of obligation and tremendous love for their families. So you put all these things together and you realize that we have, we have an intelligence that is beyond book learning. We have, we have practical intelligence that makes us work. Now we have our flaws like anybody else in our times. I'm, 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 I'm as peeved as anybody else with some of our idiosyncrasies. But then at the same time, you know, that people come here and, and they're welcome, <clears throat> they're welcome, and uh, we don't care. 
we don't care what color you are, what, what race you are, what your religion, so long as you treat us with respect and we'll treat you with respect. And uh, in a lot of ways, Newfoundlanders, we were the white slaves of North America because men fished the whole season, never saw a cent. Everything was put down, everything was written down. And at the end of a voyage, they would be given so much flour and, and uh, sugar and uh, meat, bacon, what, what have you. And, uh, and there, there'd be years when the fishermen, they wound up owing money. So they'd risk their lives, go to sea, uh, maybe get swept around, get swept off their feet, break an arm and still fish you know, broken backs. We don't hear about all the injuries. We hear about the deaths, but we don't hear about the injuries. And when you're out, to give you an example, a cubic meter or a cubic yard of water weighs one ton. That's 2,000 cubic yard of, of water. That's three feet by three feet by three feet. That weighs 2,000 pounds. Wow. So when you look at a 10-foot wave crashing over over your boat or over the side, you realize, oh, yeah, that wave can take you right off your feet. And, oh, you can bang your head, you know, and you're never quite the same afterwards. So there are a lot of misconceptions about that. And a funny thing, when the Americans came here and they built bases, because Newfoundland, we were a separate colony until 1949 when we became the 10th province of Canada. And part of the deal in the Second World War for, uh, for Britain to get uh, support from the United States was that uh, they're given grants to set up bases here in Newfoundland. And of course, we were the most easterly part of North America. So planes going out to do um, survey to, uh, to provide support for the, uh, for the convoys going across to England. Well, then leaving Gander and leaving St. John's, well, that saved them a tremendous amount of time and fuel. And uh, then they devised what they called the do system, which I think was to call a de a detection and early warning. And your great uncle Durham, uh, he worked on those as an, uh, as an inspector. He had top security clearance doing electrical inspections. And that was to detect missiles being launched over the Arctic Pole, over the North Pole into North America. And uh, so, the, so, we are, so we had a lot of experience with the, with the American people who treated us to be honest, they treated us better than a lot of Canadians did. And uh, because uh, Newfoundlanders, they'd go to, uh, go to work in Toronto or these places and uh, with our own accent, people couldn't understand what they said. Uh, we had in Newfoundland, we had one foot in the old world and we had one foot in the new world. And in some places, both feet were in the old world. So to go to a place like Toronto and function up there, well, it took some learning and uh, it took some getting used to. But Newfoundlanders and Newfoundlanders and the Kognawaga Indians from, from Quebec, they were renowned for steel ring. Right? Newfoundlanders worked on, uh, on, the, uh, on the Empire State Building. They worked on the World Trade uh, Towers. They worked on, uh, on skyscrapers in Boston, Chicago, New York. And so they were, they were, were, they were renowned for that. But, uh, but through it all, you know, they worked hard. Uh, there's hardly... A hard rock mine in North America or in Canada that doesn't have a Newfoundlander in it. So some of the real tough, hard jobs, Newfoundlanders, they weren't afraid of the work and they had to do it. They had, you know, again, they wanted to provide for their families and they were determined. So they had a lot of skills that weren't necessarily all the skills recognized by, let's say, the intelligentsia. <laughs> right. 
but at the same time, and and knowledge and knowledge and education, they, sometimes we confuse learning in a university and we think that person is educated. Well, a lot of people are, but the most important knowledge you can have is the knowledge to learn how to live every day, to provide for yourself, to do well with your skills, to you know develop your skills and to look, to look after your family. And uh, so a lot of times the book learning is one thing, but practical everyday learning is something altogether different. And so Newfoundlanders, we had to learn how to, how to get by. We had to learn how to improvise. We had to learn our geography. We had to know about weather. People talk about the weather, but a lot of times your, your life depends on the weather. If you're, if you're, if you're by, a, by a coastal community and a heavy sea comes up or the fog rolls in and you've got your, your family out to sea and they're trying to fish in a heavy sea so that they can provide for their family, well, we have to pay attention to the weather. And Newfoundlanders, you know, they were they were good at that, at knowing their, their weather. And uh, so I, I think that that as more people have come to Newfoundland and they see our beauty, and they, there used to be a joke about uh, the the guy who the guy who goes to heaven, and uh, Saint Peter meets him at the gate and everything, so he lets him in, and he says uh, he says to Saint Peter, those guys over there, are they trying to get out? Uh, yes, he said they're Newfoundlanders. They're trying to get back home. <laughs> wow, and and people couldn't understand. Uh, people couldn't understand why Newfoundlanders wanted to come back home. But people go on vacation. They love to go on on a boat, on a cruise. They love to go down by the sea. Well, our lives are. When I went to Montreal for the first time in my life, and it took me a few months to realize it. For the first time in my life, I couldn't see the ocean. And when I realized that, I said, wow, now I know. And then that took care of a lot of homesickness and uh, got my keel straightened out again. And uh, to breathe the fresh air, to have uh, wonderful sights, to be able to swim in the water. So there's so much to offer. And when you come here, the way of life, you know, it's not as fast paced as elsewhere. Uh, you can stop and talk to people. People, they'll, they'll stop and tell you a story or or, or a lie or something, but only for entertainment and, and to have fun, because uh, the fun had to be balanced with, with the hard work and with the hardship. And, uh, and, and, and if you can get respect and work hard and have fun, well, sure, that's the, the essence of life there, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's well said. And we got a couple more comments here. Uh, JC was wondering, has Dave read Wim Hof? Uh, no, I've I've never, thanks, JC. Uh, I've never read it, but uh, I know people who have studied it. And uh, the cold water swimming that we do, uh, I, don't, I don't do like all of the breathing exercises because when I get in the water, I just try to swim. But more and more studies are showing the benefits of cold water because if you look at the professional athletes today and you'll see them in their stainless steel tubs, and the trainer will come along and he'll pour in the buckets of ice. And, uh, and, and that's to get rid of, of inflammation. And inflammation, and it can be microscopic, and it can be in your pores, it can be in your blood. So it's not only inflammation in terms of, of, of on a cut, but that inflammation could be anywhere and everywhere in your body. It could be in your brain, it could be in your organs. And they say that, that the cold water immersion is that uh, it changes your metabolism and it helps to break down and deal with these uh, with these. Uh, uh, well, you say with the uh, can call them infections, but the inflammations. And uh, anybody comes to Newfoundland, uh, you're more than welcome. And 
they can contact you guys, and if possible, I'll gladly meet them and uh, and give them a tour. Get some fish and chips. Dave seems chips. like a really humble man. Very nice to meet him. Uh, thank yeah. you, JC. That's very kind of you. Uh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad you're I'm glad you're enjoying the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, and we do have a couple other Titanic points or questions here because there's always interest. Uh, yes. Let's see. Another one from JC. The unlikelihood of the Titanic sinking has led to a lot of conspiracy theories that it was sunk on purpose. And there were political elites on board who opposed the passing of the Federal Reserve Act. Interesting. I don't know. Do you have any insight on that, Dave? Interesting. No, to be honest, I, I haven't heard or read anything in, uh, in that regard. But uh, it raised an, inter an interesting question. And... Uh, it's a funny thing when people talk about conspiracy theories. Well, conspiracy means that more than one person was involved in an incident taking place. Mm -hmm. And all the times we see people charged with conspiracy to import drugs, conspiracy to commit murder, conspiracy to defraud. Uh, and what goes on behind the scenes, sometimes uh, we, we mere mortals and we, uh, we the mere pawns, uh, sometimes we're not privy to all the things that go on behind the scenes. And uh, there's the, the, the great scene and all the president's men where, where he says, follow the money. And, oh, yeah. uh, and that, uh, follow the money. And the other question is, who benefits? So sometimes things can happen that, that looks like there is a conspiracy. Sometimes if you dig deep enough and enough people have died so that the truth can come out and you, you might find that there is something behind it. But uh, personally, no, I, I have no knowledge of, of that one. The first con big conspiracy that happened uh, after I was born, or maybe, well, it, it started before I was born, was Iran-Contra. I, I mean, that was, a, that was a huge conspiracy. You alluded earlier to uh, drug trafficking. It's like, yeah. at the very least, the CIA knew that, uh, or our government knew that these drugs were being shipped and, and arms deals, deals were going on and there was terrorist funding. And so... Yeah. Like to your point, conspiracies are real. Um, some of them are real, some of them are not. So yeah. that's that's my take on it. Yeah. And then, oh, do you have another point on that? Yeah. Well, I was just going to say that in hindsight, looking back, a lot of times we can look at things and we can see, oh yes, we can connect things in hindsight. But a lot of times things happen just because of spur of the moment or it could be accidental or... Uh, there could be a variety of ways or reasons why some things happen that when we look back, it looks like a conspiracy. So un until we have actual proof that can be verified and, uh, you know, it has, to be, it has to be, everything has to be kept in perspective, I believe. Absolutely. Yeah. John B., if Titanic had slowed or plotted a, a route 50 miles south, might it have missed the ice? Uh, John, uh, that's a good question. Um, to to figure out the route that it should have taken, well, you'd need to know uh, the ice that was around. You'd need to know all of the of the current. Uh, if you look at the Gulf Stream, so the Gulf Stream comes up the eastern seaboard, and then uh, about 200, 250 miles south of, of Newfoundland, it starts to go across to uh, to the other side of the Atlantic Ocean over to England. There are places in England that have palm trees. And uh, from, from time, uh, time uh, immortal, uh, the Gulf Stream has brought uh, seeds, plants, whatever in its, in its current over to, over to parts of Europe. 
And uh, so at the time, in Newfoundland, we had two main currents. We had the Labrador Current, which comes down from up north. It hits the northern part of Newfoundland. I'm going to use my thumb. Uh, so it hits the northern part, and it breaks. And the major, the major part of it, it brings down the icebergs. And the small part of it goes down the western side of Newfoundland, between Newfoundland and mainland of Canada, called the, uh, the Gulf of St. Lawrence. So depending on... The amount of ice, the type of ice, uh, the current at the time, wind conditions. So all of these, for example, if you have a wind at uh, at 20 knots, or say we'll say 20 miles an hour, well, blowing at 20 miles an hour, if that's sustained, if that is sustained for 24 hours, well, that's 480 miles, right? So 20 miles. So if if something is moving at uh, We'll say an iceberg is moving at five miles an hour. Well, that means in one day it has traveled 120 miles. Now, the winds change and, and it meets the current, and depending on the temperature, because some of the ice will start to melt. So, uh, but I would say that yes, there's certainly a good chance that if, it, if the Titanic had gone farther south, uh, it would have been in warmer waters, and the chance of them hitting an iceberg or hitting something dangerous definitely would have been would have been brought down to uh, down to a very low, very low risk. I don't think the um, fascination or obsession with Titanic will ever totally go away, but I would hope after the unfortunate accident that happened um, there with the, the the people who passed away, you know, go actually going down to it would, would yes. maybe prevent people from doing that again. I think maybe let the place, it's a grave site for so many people, maybe yeah. just let it be, yeah. you know? Yes, uh, I mean it's a source of fascination uh, all the time, and uh, and I think the most important thing is to realize. I can remember being on Signal Hill, which is a well-known well-known uh, spot in in St. John's, where where world battles were fought with the Dutch and the French and English, and uh, and even the Germans, and I, I went up there to to watch a cruise ship leave. Right, so I was right down at water level, first of all, and I forget the cruise ship a few years back, but it's a real big one. And so I'm watching pass by, and when, they, when they're sailing out of our harbor, they have to maintain a certain speed because the side, the side of the ship acts, acts the same as the sail. So the wind can hit these cruise ships and actually push them off course. If they're going too slow, they don't have enough momentum. So they have to maintain a certain speed uh, to prevent the, the winds from blowing them off course going in, in and out of these harbors. So I watched the, the, the ship pass by and it's moving at a pretty good clip. So then it went up to the top of Signal Hill, which is about 500 feet elevation. And I watched it sail off into the night. And here you see this massive ship, all kinds of lights and everything. And in a matter of minutes, it disappeared. It wasn't even, it wasn't even a speck on the ocean and in the dark. And you realize, and you, you look at the vastness of the ocean, you look at the depth of it, and the biggest ship in the world can disappear. So again, coming back to the point that when you're on the ocean, when you're on the sea, to love it, revere it, respect it, and be humble by it. But, but, and, and water has a memory. People, I don't know if people realize that, but if all of us put our finger in, in a bowl of water, that water knows that each one of us had our finger in it. It mightn't be able to say, well, oh yeah, that was Mike and that was Dave and that was Eric, but it knows the difference because each one of us will leave some kind of a, of a mark, some kind of a, of a DNA sample. 
And when you look at water, water can tell you where it has been. If it, is, if it has flowed from a particular reservoir, if it's gone through a certain valley, if it's gone through uh, a certain culvert, for example. So everywhere it travels, it picks up information and it carries that information with it. Now, a lot of, the a lot of times we can see it by something floating. Or sometimes we have to do uh, an examination with a microscope and break it down. And yes, we can tell exactly where that water came from by the mineral content or by the organic matter. So water has a, has a memory. And there are some great things. We, uh, we talked about the Wim Hof uh, approach. There are studies that show uh, water being frozen and uh, a container of water put in front of a microwave or being actually microwaved and then making uh, an ice crystal from a drop of water versus uh, another sample was uh, uh, a pool over in Japan where, where Buddhist monks used to go and bathe every day. And they took a sample and every day, every time they went to the pool, they would bless it. So this, uh, this doctor uh, who's doing the studies, Japanese doctor, uh, professor, he took a sample of the water before they got in and uh, made slides and frozen to the point where he got the perfect ice crystal. And then, uh, and then, he, then he measured it again after the monks had blessed the pool. And after they had blessed the water, the ice crystals that were formed were, had more symmetry and you could tell the difference between, between the two sets. And uh, they put water in a microwave and microwaved it and then did the same thing and the ice crystals came out and they were poorly formed and some of them weren't even formed properly. So whatever it is about water, water is a living breathing in because it has, it has oxygen, it has so many of the nutrients, uh, animals live in us, right? Fish and all kinds of sea creatures live in us. Uh, we need water, we need water to, to, to live. So water is a living breathing entity. So that's where I think, in, in, in that regard, I think the greatest damage being done to our climate today is what's being done to the water, to the, to the aquifers, to the rivers, to the reservoirs, to the ocean, all the plastic that's in the oceans, all the stuff being discarded. And uh, me personally, that's the greatest uh, threat that I see to our environment. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think, uh, I think global warming that we're going through, I think that's a natural cycle. And I don't mean that, that we can put pollution into the air, absolutely not. But, uh, but I think we go through cycles with the sun and, uh, and I think that we need to look after the, the water that we drink and that we use. And remember that water has to be used for, med for medical purposes. It has to be used for, for hygiene and for cooking. And, uh, and we use that every, every single day. And water, we, we use water for cooling and we use water for heating. Yeah, it's not something we should take for granted, and, and maybe we just don't think about it too often. And, and right. some, some of us, uh, some of us do. Well, yeah. hey, man, this has been fascinating. We could we could <laughs> could listen to you talk all day. I mean, you're you're like a history professor too. I mean, is there anything you you don't do? <laughs> well, thank you. Well, thank you. Well, the thing is, is that when we get talking about interesting topics, you know, and and I mentioned earlier that I had nothing but the best teachers, and one of the things I've loved about my occupation was that I've met people from every walk of life, from every nationality, every religious persuasion, every economic, political stripe, you name it. And I've always enjoyed that, that I could talk to them and sort of pick their brain about things I was interested in and get a little bit more information about things. 
and uh, just enough to have have some basic knowledge so I could try to make up my own mind about certain things. And uh, after a while, it, sound, it sounds like we're, like we're smarter than we are, but uh, just when we think we got it all figured out, something happens and we realize we don't know a thing. We but, know a little bit about a lot. Yes. But on that note, if you've got one more minute, there are two things that I've recently yeah. found. Uh, one is called the uh, Thunderbolts Project. And in the Thunderbolts Project, they talk about the role that plasma, plasma being the fourth state of matter. So, for example, lightning is plasma, fire, a flame is plasma, neon, the neon in, in the neon light, that's plasma. And they talk about the role that plasma and electromagnetism play in the formation of the stars and planets and everything that we see in space. So space is not a vacuum. And uh, things, get, things get, get, get made because of electrical charge, negative and positive. And I found that a few years ago, and that has me absolutely fascinated. So if anybody is interested in that area, uh, it's called the Thunderbolts Project. And again, they talk about electromagnetism. And electromagnetism, magnetism is 10 to the 39th power stronger than gravity. And they say that gravity is, is a weak expression of, uh, of electromagnetism. And uh, so if anybody is interested in that uh, and you're looking for some other answers, um, what I found about it was that it made common sense to me. There are things I used to watch about the Cosmo and Cosmos, and I'd watch these shows on PBS, which I love. But then watching some of these shows, I'm thinking, this sounds more like science fiction than actual fact. And then when I found the, the Thunderbolts project in the Electric Universe, I realized, wait a minute, this makes sense to me. This makes common sense. So since I found that, I've been absolutely fascinated by that. And so I'm trying to learn more about that. And, uh, and the other thing that I found, I started reading uh, things about Stoicism, uh, S-T-O-I-C-I-S-M. And basically that says that whatever happens to us, it's not the event, but it's how we deal with it. And things that happen in our lives, it's all based on our attitude. And it's not so much the event, but it's, it's how we react to the event and how we use that event to our, to our betterment. And sometimes, you know, we get a raw deal, oh, we're, we're cursing, swearing, oh yeah, you know, we feel like we're the victims of this and victims of that. And I don't mean to downplay, you know, serious things, but, you know, sometimes we lose money on an issue or, you know, we don't like what somebody has said to us or whatever. And you realize that all of these things, the last decision made is always ours. So if somebody upsets me, well, it's my choice to either let them upset me or it's my choice to rise above it and see how I can benefit and how I can make myself better by it. And, uh, and sometimes it's easier said than done. But then again, we're all looking for answers. And sometimes we have to look in a different spot to get an answer that, that works the best for us. And I think what I'm saying is that everybody has a right to, to look and find their way in life. And hopefully it'll be the best one for them that'll benefit all of us. And uh, we're, all, we're all in this together. And uh, we're, all, we're all on this one earth. And we all swim in the oceans and we breathe the air. So somewhere there's a connection, I think, to all of us. Where, where it is and how we'll, we'll find it, well, maybe we'll have to wait till the next world, who knows. But, uh, but being able to talk to you guys and to, uh, to your wonderful listeners, and I thank you so much for your kind words. You're more than, you're more than kind with them. 
and uh, I'm lucky. I, I found that what I needed to do and what I love to do, they were both the same. So, so how lucky am I? Oh, I love that, and and I love that you, you, your philosophy about always, you know, seeking and and I mean, you, you never stop learning. I mean, that's a real that's a real thing, and and um, yeah, man, that philosophy is kind of like a, a saying I heard: water on a duck. Someone comes at you with something or, or insults you. I mean, I've I've been. You know, uh, obviously, I'm a larger fellow, so I've heard all the everything that comes along with that from people, and I, I have a pretty no pun intended thick skin about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. But you're gonna be water on a duck sometimes. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So, as long as you can be a decent human being and and don't look after your family, look after the people who love you and love them back. You know, and it, it 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 solves a lot of problems. Yeah, it starts with yourself, man. I I, I think so, and what you can affect in your inner your friends and your family and your community. That's, that's how, I think that's how things are going to change on a, on a, a larger level when, when yeah. more of us realize that yeah. we have to deal with what we can actually affect and impact. Right. And you, never, you never know what kind of impact you're going to have on people. That's right. I mean, I, I bet someone from this chat might end up going to Newfoundland for a trip, man. I, I could totally see that happening. And, well, you know, I so. yeah. maybe you, and, and I, I really want to get back up there too. Um, well, I, I hope so because now, now, now that you guys have been here and our time together was was too short, so I'm, I'm looking forward for you guys to come back and uh, and show you even more of our beautiful province, and uh, and get some more of the, the great fish and chips. Oh so. yeah, yeah, that's a must. We'll do yeah. some pints. We'll hoist some pints too. We'll make sure we're all you know primed up to do a couple pints if possible. Yeah. <laughs> all right, folks. Well, there you have it. Uh, Dave Jackman, uh, a man of, of many disciplines and uh, many talents, and uh, we'd love to have you back on again. I mean, we, we have other stuff we can get into, and um, it was just a really interesting conversation, and, uh, you know, I'm honored, and I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Eric, and it's been my pleasure, and, and again, thank you to all the listeners and your great questions, and uh, I wish all you guys love, love and happiness and the greatest of success to everybody. And thank you so much again. All right. Thank you.